So let's read today's passage, and I'll summarise the remainder of the story before I cover my four main points. And the words will be up behind me, or you can follow in your Bible. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 to 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, She stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, the story continues. 
Ruth goes to the fields to glean leftover grain after the harvesters. She happens to work in a field belonging to Boaz. Boaz treats her with kindness beyond that which is required by the law. He has heard about Ruth and her commitment to both Naomi and also to God, and he praises her for this. He prays that God would reward her for her actions. Ruth is very grateful for the gracious treatment she receives. She works hard in the fields all day and collects a substantial volume of barley. She goes home to her mother-in-law and tells of this man, Boaz, in whose field she has worked. Naomi is delighted. Not only has this man shown generosity to their plight, he is also a relative of her late husband's, and Naomi identifies him as being one of their kinsmen redeemers. Now, a kinsman redeemer was a relative who would provide for them, possibly through marriage. So this was potentially an answer to their current difficult situation. Naomi hatches a plan that, in effect, leads to Ruth boldly asking Boaz to act as their kinsman redeemer and to marry her. Amazingly, he says yes. So Boaz marries Ruth, and together they have a child, Obed. Naomi and Ruth's unenviable situation has been reversed, and there is joy and celebration. But the story doesn't end there. In the genealogy at the end, we learn that Obed is the grandfather of David, Israel's greatest king, revealing that this family's story has significance that stretches into the ages. I want us to concentrate on four themes that emerge from the story of Ruth that show us the character of God, point to Jesus and the gospel, and reveal to us what the kingdom of God is like. God loves the outsider. His kingdom is inclusive. God loves the ordinary. His kingdom is all-pervading. The providence of God, his kingdom is eternal. God is loving kindness. His kingdom is generous. So, point number one, God loves the outsider. His kingdom is inclusive. Ruth 1 verse 4, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. Firstly, it's interesting to note that Ruth is one of only five women included in Matthew's otherwise all-male genealogy. This is unusual and unconventional and highlights that Matthew wanted to draw particular attention to these particular women. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary. Except Mary, these four women are not women most Israelite readers would necessarily want attention drawn to. They were all non-Israelites or connected to non-Israelite families. And they were women who were associated with Israel's sin and failure. At first glance, it seems strange that Matthew has chosen to remind his readers of Israel's less glamorous past. He could have chosen to highlight Israel's more classical heroines like Rebecca and Sarah and Rachel, but he doesn't. But in fact, this is exactly his point. He is reminding us of the failings of God's people to show us just how sovereign God is. He is also showing us that outsiders, people who were not originally part of the people of God, had been woven into Jesus' royal lineage. Jesus' family tree is not simply full of the usual suspects. Instead, it is full of surprises. So as we see in verse 4 of chapter 1, 
Ruth is a Moabite woman. Her status as a Moabitess is frequently mentioned throughout the book of Ruth, as if the author is reminding us in case we've forgotten. The significance of this is that the Moabites were not simply not Israelites. They were long-time enemies of the Israelites. At the time of the Judges, the era in which the book of Ruth is set, there was a long history of hostility and violence between the Israelites and the Moabites. They were barred from entering the kingdom, the assembly of the people of God, as we see in Deuteronomy 23. And their origin as a people can be traced back to the unsavory story in Genesis 19, as Moab was the son of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. They were worshippers of pagan gods and idols and had a history of encouraging the Israelites into sinfulness. Marriage to Moabites was not prohibited, but it was definitely not encouraged, as everything about Moab spoke of alienation from God and from his promises. So how does a Moabite woman find herself in Jesus' family tree? Well, Ruth was not like other Moabite women. She was a woman who came to know God and to call him Lord. Previously, when reading Ruth chapter 1, I have been slightly in doubt regarding Ruth's personal faith in God. I, and maybe, maybe you're the same, I have read her words and taken from them the resolution to stick with Naomi and, uh, and assumed that Ruth is talking about taking her God somehow just to please Naomi. However, a closer look at the language used in verses 16 and 17 reveals a deeper meaning. Ruth says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now, there's a very familiar ring to these words, and it's not simply because you've heard them before in Ruth's story, and maybe some of you will realize that you've actually just heard them from Chris this morning when he was... Um, talking about communion. It's because they reflect the very words of God as he made his covenant with his people. This is covenant language. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's from Leviticus 26. Um, Similar language is used in, in Genesis and Exodus. And when Ruth says, your God will be my God, she's not simply expressing unswerving commitment to her mother-in-law. She's making a confession of faith. And the original Jewish readers would have understood this from this language. The fact of her conversion is confirmed in Ruth uh, 2 verse 12, when Boaz states he has heard that she has come to take refuge under the shadow of the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. This language is again a common Old Testament expression for trusting in him as covenant Lord. In case we were in any doubt, the author of the book of Ruth also uses repetition 12 times of the Hebrew verb shub to ensure that readers don't miss this point. This word shub means return, but it's also the main Old Testament word used for turning back to God turning back to his covenant grace and mercy for repentance, for conversion. So by using this verb so many times, the author is hammering a point home. This is a conversion story. 
Ruth has clearly been converted to faith in the Lord, the God of Israel, and her actions through the book of Ruth demonstrate her submission to him and his will. Therefore, Ruth exemplifies the truth that belonging to the kingdom of God is not dependent on birth, circumstance, or upbringing, but instead is dependent on faith in the God who saves. Now, what about you? Have you put your faith in the God who saves? Are you simply part of the crowd that comes along to church on a Sunday? Or do you have a real and personal faith in Jesus? Maybe you've never taken that step to declare Jesus as Lord. And if you'd like to do that today, there will be opportunity for you at the end. So outsiders are welcome in the kingdom of God. Ruth's inclusion in Jesus' family tree shows us that outsiders are not only welcome, but are actually essential to God's plan. God's kingdom is inclusive, and he uses all types of people to bring his purposes about, and that includes us. So let's look at our next point. God loves the ordinary. His kingdom is all-pervading. Ruth 1, verse 1, a man together with his wife and two sons. One of the things um, I really love about Ruth is that it's a story about ordinary people facing ordinary events in their ordinary lives. They face the same things that we face, moving, financial difficulty, going out to work, relationship problems, it's, it's all there. I can relate to the characters because I can imagine their circumstances. I can relate to their faith because it is an everyday faith rather than a kind of way out their faith. But the ordinariness of Ruth's story speaks more of this, more than this. It speaks of God's concern for our own ordinariness. It is God showing us that he is intimately involved in the everyday of our lives. Our small, seemingly insignificant lives are not insignificant to him. He cares for us. The backdrop for the book of Ruth is explained in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. And we see from the book of Judges that this was a time of great turmoil and upheaval and conflict. The last verse of that book of Judges, immediately prior to the book of Ruth, states, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These were dark, difficult times. And yet in all of this, God is concerned with one small family from Bethlehem, a man, his wife, and his two sons. When Ruth comes onto the scene, she is also an ordinary woman. We learn nothing more about her background here other than that she was a Moabitess. In chapter one, we see her bold commitment to Naomi and to God, but the setting is ordinary life. Ruth has been married and then left widowed without children and finds herself at junction. Should she follow God and stay with Naomi to join God's people? Or should she leave Naomi and return to her own gods and her own people? Ruth's decision is made without fanfare or writing in the sky. She receives no angel from God telling her, if she follows Naomi and follows God, she will become the great-grandmother of this greatest king of Israel and later the saviour of the world. She doesn't hear a voice speaking from God, speaking from heaven, instructing her which path to choose. 
Instead, she simply chooses to put God first in her decision-making. And just look at how God honours that. We can learn so much from this. We can be keen to wait for some special sign to show us the way, something miraculous and extraordinary. And we want an audible voice of encouragement. But actually, we simply need to be obedient to him and trust that he will guide our steps. In Ruth's story, we see examples of God blessing simple obedience in ordinary, everyday things. Obviously, Ruth's decision to follow God and to go with Naomi back to Judah is pivotal in the later events. However, we then see God moving through very ordinary situations. In chapter 2, we read about Ruth and Boaz's meeting. Ruth and Naomi need food to eat. And so Ruth goes to glean in the field. She is simply going out to work to find food to support the family. And yet this is the setting for God's intervention and ultimately his abundant provision. The simple obedience of Boaz in everyday actions plays a major role here. In the law of Moses, we see that God commands landowners to leave what the harvesters have missed so that the poor, the alien, the widow, the fatherless could glean for their needs. Boaz faithfully follows this law and the result of his simple obedience is that he meets Ruth. Sometimes our everyday can be very mundane, perhaps even boring. And it can be hard to imagine how God could ever use our actions for his purposes and for his glory. Maybe you're at home looking after children or your family, um, wondering how yet another load of laundry could possibly be for God's glory. Maybe you're studying at school or university and wonder how this next assignment could possibly be for God's glory. Maybe you're working hard at your job but never feeling that your work is noticed or appreciated and maybe wonder if God notices too. We can fall into our culture's celebrity trap and start believing that you have to be famous or doing something extraordinary to be doing anything that's really truly important or worthwhile. But God's word tells us this isn't true. Ruth's story tells us that the everyday actions of ordinary, everyday people a part of God's master plan for the salvation of the world. How exciting is it to imagine how God can use our lives as part of his bigger purposes? How a simple act of obedience may spark a chain of events that has eternal consequences. And we may never know which of our simple acts of obedience that is until we get to heaven. But this is the reality with God. And it's also why we believe how we do the ordinary, everyday things that matters too. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. The God of the nations is at work in the day-to-day -day activities of ordinary people like you and me. 
the eternal God Almighty is involved in our mundane every day. He is weaving the details of our small, brief lives into this wonderful tapestry of his eternal purposes. His eternal purposes that have the redemptive power of the death and resurrection of Jesus at their very centre. How do we respond to this? Well, are we believing God for our mundane every day? Are we living our whole lives, even the boring bits, solely for him and for his glory? Moving on to our third point. The providence of God, his kingdom is eternal. Ruth 2, verse 3, as it turned out. Providence is God's foreseeing care and guidance over our lives. And the story of Ruth is steeped in the beauty of God's providence. It stands as an example for us to learn the truth of God's hand overseeing our care. As we have just discussed, God is concerned with everyday aspects of our lives. And here we see how God carefully weaves those everyday circumstances into his eternal purpose. Even when we make mistakes, even when times are tough, and even when times are good. So in Ruth chapter 1, we've read about Elimelech and his family moving to Moab. Now this wasn't a good move for several reasons, not least because it meant leaving the land that was promised by God. Now the results were devastating. Elimelech died, his two sons married Moabite women, but then died themselves. They left an older widow and two younger widows, all in a very vulnerable situation. It's hard to see how this could be made right. And yet God worked it for good. It is only by moving to Moab that Naomi met Ruth. It is only through Naomi and her faith that Ruth came to know the Lord. And it is only by their dire circumstances that they returned back to Bethlehem. Back in Bethlehem, it just so happened that Ruth should go to glean in the field belonging to Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's late husband. And so it just so happened that Ruth met Boaz and therefore became incorporated into Jesus' family tree. The author highlights to us that nothing is an accident or a mere coincidence with God. Now, interestingly, the, the narrative voice in the book of Ruth rarely mentions God. And by doing this, the author is actually emphasizing that God is quietly at work behind the scenes of all of the events. When, descri- when events are described as it so happened or as it turned out, you can almost hear the wink in the author's eye as they say, as they say it, as if to emphasize, we know, we know this was no accident. So throughout Ruth's story, we see that God had a bigger plan and a bigger purpose and even used people's mistakes to bring this about. But it's useful to pause here just to think about the events from the participants' view. We know the end from the beginning, and so we read the events in Ruth in the light of the rest of the Bible and then more significantly in the light of the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour we can see that God was working out his eternal purposes. But the individual players didn't know that at the time. They had to trust God in their circumstances without knowing how it would end. And this is how we find ourselves in our lives. 
We have to trust God because we can't see how we fit into the bigger picture. We might sometimes get glimpses of it, but we don't see the whole. We need to live our lives in the light of eternity, even though we cannot see it from that perspective yet. Uh, An illustration often given here is that of the tangled threads on the back of a tapestry. And our lives can often feel like this kind of tangle of different colours and knots and just threads going in all sorts of different directions. We can't see, it doesn't make any sense. And it's only when we turn it over that we actually see a beautiful tapestry that says, God is love. This is especially the case when we go through trials and suffering We may never learn in this life why we or those close to us have to endure particular periods of suffering. However, we can choose to trust God and to choose to trust his promises in Romans 8 that say, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And and God's already put this point onto us today in what Um, Raph brought about the goodness of God and seeing his hand in all circumstances so we need faith is still a gift and we need to ask God for that gift to help us in these times and we need to ask him for his sustaining faith so that when we're confronted with circumstances that are unbearable to face that it is we're looking to his power to sustain us and not our own so are you struggling with your circumstances, be them boring and mundane or difficult, well, turn to God in prayer and ask him to sustain you and to give him his eternal perspective on, on, your current, on our current circumstances. And now to our final point. God is loving kindness. His kingdom is generous. Ruth 1 verse 8, may the Lord show kindness to you. The word used in this verse, translated kindness, is the Hebrew word hesed. And this great word is a key theme in the book of Ruth. It is used here in chapter 1 by Naomi in relation to God. And it's the word used by Boaz to describe Ruth's actions to Naomi. And it's also the word used to describe Boaz's actions towards Ruth. Now, it's a key word in the Old Testament and occurs over 250 times. It is the word at the center of God's covenant relationship with his people. In Exodus 34, 6, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says he is a God full of hesed. And we translate this as steadfast love or loving kindness. It is his deep goodness that is expressed in his covenant commitment to his people. It's his absolute loyalty, even if that loyalty brings with it personal cost to God himself. And this loving kindness points to Jesus as he is ultimately the one who is the outworking of God's promise to us. Jesus takes the punishment that is due to us for our sin and disobedience so that God's blessing might be ours. And we read in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 1 John 4, 10 to 11 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he 
loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So this is what we are called to do, to love others with the same love that Jesus has shown for us. Out of thankfulness for all that Jesus has done for us, our heart should overflow with generosity. We see examples of this in Boaz in the story of Ruth. Not only did he do what was required by the law, but he went beyond it. He didn't simply let Ruth glean, but he gave her food, he told his workers to ensure that she was safe, and then he told them to deliberately drop extra grain for her to collect. Out of his thankfulness to God flowed generosity to those in need. God has given us so much. How much, therefore, should we generously give to others? And this generosity is not simply about money. It's about our time and our efforts, our talents, ourselves. And it's about showing loving kindness to those around us, including the poor, the vulnerable, the outsiders. So are we doing this? Are we responding to that overwhelmingly generous, steadfast love of God that we don't deserve by generously showing love to others? So in summary, firstly, God loves the outsider. His kingdom is inclusive. God included us when we were outsiders, and now we need to include outsiders too. At King's, we want to be a church that is for all, and we have a role to play in drawing outsiders into his church and into his kingdom. And maybe you're still on the outside, while God wants to call you inside today. Secondly, God loves the ordinary, his kingdom is all-pervading. God wants us to give him control over every area of our lives, even the very ordinary parts. And he wants us to live each day, each very ordinary day, for his glory. So are we doing that? Are we honouring God in the way we conduct ourselves at work or with our families or with our non-Christian friends? We need to let the Holy Spirit convict us and then ask him for his transforming power to be more Christ-like every day. Thirdly, the providence of God. His kingdom is eternal. God knows the beginning from the end, and he is working his purpose through our lives. Let's ask him to give us his eternal perspective on our lives, and let's look to him in prayer, whatever our current circumstances. Finally, God is loving kindness. His kingdom is generous. God has been abundantly generous to us. He has given us his son as payment for our sin and given us eternal riches instead of the punishment we justly deserve. So how much, therefore, should we generously give love to others?